It's a joy to be here, and uh, I can't, I, I'm not going to tell you the story again, but every time I walk in this room, I think about the very first time I ever walked in here, way back in 1967. <laughs> uh, again, I'm not going to bore you with that story, but I couldn't help but remember it. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and we'll read from verse 24 uh, to verse 28. Hear now God's word. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And then I want to note, I want you to notice especially this next verse, and I'll comment just a word or two about it at the end, but it's very important. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And thus ends the reading and the hearing read of God's word. I want to begin by telling you a story about a man named William of Borden. You may know this story. Uh, it comes out of a book called Borden of Yale. And these Bordens were not the dairy uh, farm, dairy uh, industry, a, a different Borden. These Bordens lived in Chicago, and they were very wealthy. Uh, the father had made his money in the investment and banking business. <clears throat> and they had a son, had several children, but one of the sons was named William. And uh, he went with his mother once to hear Dwight L. Moody preach. This was around the turn of the, of the 20th century, down, around 1900. He went to hear with his mother to hear Dwight L. Moody preach in Chicago. And uh, he was savingly converted that morning, truly regenerated. And he began to grow as a Christian. And as he got older, uh, he began to pray about what the Lord wanted him to do. Well, he uh, was very intelligent and they had the money. And he decided that he would go to Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. And he went to Yale, and he had a huge impact on the student body there. He just had a gift for reaching out, telling others about Christ. And he started Bible studies all over the campus. Wouldn't it be great if they had that at Yale today? It went all over uh, the campus spreading the word of Christ. And uh, he decided that he wanted to be a missionary. And he wanted to go to China. But he was... Presbyterian, and by that time uh, he decided he wanted to be a minister also, and so he went and enrolled in Princeton Seminary, and there he got to sit under the great J. Gresham Machen, if you know that name, and he grew and, and prospered there very much, and then it came time for him to graduate and for him to go off to the mission field to China. Now, when he made that final decision and really decided that he was going, a lot of his friends at Yale thought he was foolish. And they thought, you are crazy. You've come from a wonderful family. They have a lot of money. They have great influence. Uh, why are you going to throw your life away in some foreign country? And uh, you can have such a worthwhile and enjoyable life here. What are you doing this for? But Borden, William Borden, had heard the call of God, 
and he left. While he was on the way to China, he, he, on the way the route took him, he stopped in Cairo, Egypt. And while he was there, <clears throat> before he had a chance to do much of anything, he came down with a terrible sickness. He had spinal meningitis. And it soon became apparent to those who were there and those who were waiting upon him that he was going to die. And sure enough, he did. You know, it, it, right before it happened, I'm sure William Borden could have said to himself, what a waste my life has been. My friends were right. I should have stayed in New Haven and then gone back to Chicago and had a life of prosperity and ease. But that isn't what he thought at all. And that isn't what he said. He didn't think that way. As he lay on his deathbed, he scribbled a farewell note. And his mother came to pick up his body a year, a week later, and she found his Bible. And she looked in the cover of the Bible, and there was this note that he had scribbled to be get left for his friends to hear. It could have been his epitaph. It's a very famous line in Christian history. And this is what it said. It was a farewell note, and this is what it said. Very short. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. What was he saying? He's saying, I've given my best. I don't feel guilty about it at all. And I don't have any regrets. I'm not sorry I've done this. How could that young man at about 25 years old, how could he have made such a statement in light of his background? And I think the reason that he could and the answer to that question is in our text. And I want to see if we can learn something from it ourselves today. What we have here in the text, of course, is the conclusion to the greatest sermon ever preached. The greatest sermon ever preached is the Sermon on the Mount. And so I would begin by saying, what do most preachers do when they come to an end of a sermon? Oh, they'll have an interesting summation of what they've been saying. Or they'll give a very emotional story. Or they'll have a ringing salutation. Or they'll have a stirring challenge. All of those are proper and good, and often preachers use any one of those. Um, Jesus doesn't do that. He is just as profound and simple at the end of his sermon as he has been all along. He tells a very simple story and ties it all together, what he's been teaching. And he said one is to put into practice, uh, he said one, one thing is that we need to put into practice what I've said in obedience. One way you can, one, one thing you can do is You've heard me, now put it into practice. Another thing you can do is forget it. Ignore it. The first response is the response of a wise man. The second response is the response of a fool. Jesus is saying that human beings build their lives this way. They build their lives in the way that designers plan cities and architects plan buildings and build them. His main point is that the factor that determines what's going to remain and what will not remain is the foundation. 
That's how he explains it. This is how he explains it. One man digs down. After a while, he gets, digs down, and it gets kind of tough uh, because he runs into rock, and he has to work hard. But he keeps going, and then he lays a solid foundation and begins the superstructure upon that rock that he's found after he has dug down a bit. The other man says, huh, what am I going to do that for? I'm not going to waste my time going down there and building something on some rock. I'm going to put this thing up in a hurry. I ain't got time to waste on this. I'm in a hurry. And before the first man has even finished digging the foundation, the second man has already finished his house. He made the first man at this point look foolish. We'll see what happens, though. But look again. Look at this whole thing again. Let's examine it. Let's get out of business here. And that brings us to the first point. The differences in foundation. The wise man spent a great deal of time in underground work. Matthew says he dug deep and he was well established on the rock or on a rock. And it took time to do this. The foolish man was in a hurry. He was in a rush and he worked through sand. It was easy and soon he had a visible building. What does Jesus mean here? Okay, I'm going to tell you what he means. Most real spiritual growth comes that, that, that is necessary for testing, and I'm going to prove to you that testing is going to come to every single person in this room. Most real growth and preparation for testing will nearly always be done privately or quietly. What do I mean by that? Most real growth, most real spiritual preparation and growth is slow. It takes a long time and often it's done in private. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the spade work of real Bible study. I'm talking about scripture memory. Do you work on memorizing parts of the scripture? Thy word have I hid in my heart, the psalmist says, that I might not sin against thee. Are you working on hiding the scripture in your heart? When I was 15 years old, I grew up in Brandon, in the Brandon Presbyterian Church right outside of Jackson. And we had a new pastor by the name of Julius Scott when I was going into the ninth grade. He had been the director of a Christian camp outside of Atlanta that was started by Westminster Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, which is a historic church. He'd been the director of that camp while he was in seminary at Columbia Seminary, and then he'd taken the call to come to Brandon. And he wanted... Uh, he, he, he wanted me to go to that camp. He thought it would be good for me. And, he, and I, I didn't want to go. Well, he convinced my parents. And they told me I was going to go. And I said, no, sir, no, ma'am, I'm not going to go. I'm going to play third base for the Rankin County All-Stars this summer, and we're going to beat Meridian. And I will never forget what my daddy said. He said, son, you're never going to beat Meridian. I played against them many times. They always have crooked umpires. <laughs> and so I went. <laughs> and was it ever more life-changing? Two things happened. The last summer I was there, I was there four years, four summers. The last summer I was there, I was head of the work crew, and I met the girl who became my first wife, Joyce Horton, who was from Clinton, Mississippi, her father was one of the founders of reform, a lawyer in Jackson who was the founder, one of the founders of RTS. 
One other, a lot of things happened, but another thing that happened was they had a rule at Camp Westminster that you had to memorize a scripture verse every morning before you could eat breakfast or you could not get in. I didn't believe it. So I, the first time I memorized the first verse and, and I, I thought, well, okay, I'll do it again. I never really tried them to see if they, what they'd do to me if I didn't learn the verse. I'm so glad I did that. I learned so many scripture verses that I still have with me now. Of course, I had to learn it or I wasn't going to get to eat breakfast is the way they said it. But I'm so glad they did that. Secret prayer. How much time do you spend building the foundation of your life in secret prayer? What about devotional reading? It's often be, to be done alone. If it's with a group, it's not flashy. I am to tell you that it is of these simple things that we know so little. The foundation work of listening to good preaching and understanding the preacher takes time and maturity and growth. Reading spiritual classics takes time. Listen, I can go to your house this afternoon. I can come in your den or, or study or wherever it is, your library. Now, I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm just going to tell you the truth. I can tell in 10, 15 minutes probably what kind of Christian you are by what kind of books you've got on, in your library and what you've been reading. You see, one of the proofs that our culture today doesn't understand what I'm talking about Go to any Christian bookstore and how many, they have new ones every month or two and they're all, and, and they have some classics there, of course. But over and over and over we get these new books. Try this and you'll be so happy. Try this concept. Read my book on this and it'll make all the difference in the world and how your Christian life is. You'll have strength and power. You'll get somewhere. Listen, folks, if there's any secret to this thing, I would have learned it a long time ago. I've been in this game 50 years. There's nothing, no substitute for hard, disciplined work secretly and in church too. If you're in a church and you've got good preaching like you're going to have in this church, you need to be here every time the door is open and to learn as much as you can about the Bible. If there's a Bible study around here in this town or in this church somewhere that's good and they're really teaching the scripture, get in it. Learn the word of God. Spiritual growth is not an overnight thing. I don't think the church has learned this lesson yet. I'm going to prove it to you. When I was in Memphis at Independent Press, uh, we were experiencing amazing growth. We, I, I, I don't need to tell you those numbers. It sounds like I'd be bragging. But anyway, the Lord sent a lot of people. I had a church of young adults. I'm not a church, a class, a Sunday school class of young adults. They had 250 in it. Now, these were people that, from East Memphis. They were, most of them, many of them were well-educated, professional people, not all. But they were sharp people. They were smart people. And I was teaching them. And I'd been teaching for three years. I think we covered the book of Romans entirely and several other things. And all of a sudden I heard about this Bible quiz that R.C. Sproul had developed. A hundred questions. Some of them were filling the blank. Some of them were uh, just one point and one answer. 
Uh, some of them were multiple choice. And I thought, hey, great idea. I'll give it to my class. I mean, they've been sitting under me. They're going to really do well. And John Sartell's been preaching most of the time. I had him on, on when he wasn't there, and I had him on Sunday night. But they'll do great. This is going to be so much fun. And so I gave them the test. Guess how many of that 250 made over 70 on that test? 15. I was humiliated. I thought, i got to get on it. I thought I'd really taught these people something. They don't know the Bible much at all. Unbelievable. And it was not a hard test. It was not a hard test. I'm afraid the church hasn't learned the foundational principle that he's talking about in getting down deep and building a foundation for your life. When I was pastor in Brookhaven, I'm going to say something else about that in a minute. Uh, I, I've always been involved in sports, and I got to serve, I got asked to serve on the Mississippi State Board of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Uh, I, love, I love sports, and uh, I want to I tell you something. If this church doesn't give money to the FCA, you need to start doing it. Let me tell you why. The Fellowship of Christian Athletes is the only evangelical, conservative, Bible-teaching ministry that can still get into public schools. Do you hear me? We talk about the mission field, and I'm all for missions all over the world or wherever. The mission field's right down the road. And they can still get into public schools and teach the Bible. The only ones that still can. As much as I love them, and I do still support them, they make a big mistake often. You let an athlete in college, and I once was the speaker at the National Fellowship of Christian Athletes Conference in Black Mountain, North Carolina. We had a thousand athletes, college and professional. But you let an athlete in a college or, or above that level just mentioned that he loves Jesus or something, and all of a sudden they're speaking everywhere. And the sad thing is they're about that deep, usually, and a lot of them fade. It's a mistake. But I'm, as I've said already, I think the church has made that mistake too. Listen, spiritual growth, I've said it already, but I'm going to say it one more time, is not fast. By its very nature, it cannot be. It was Samuel Rutherford. Do you know him? Samuel Rutherford was, was a member of the Westminster Assembly. He was a great Scottish preacher. And if you ever read him, you'll say you've never read anything like him. It was Samuel Rutherford who said, grace grows best in winter. Do you get it? When things are not so comfortable and easy and you have to kind of pay it, he's saying that's when you'll grow more. And he's right. When it's easy... You kind of get lazy. It was John Bunyan. You know who that is. He wrote wrote the Pilgrim's Progress, who also said, "I have heard of some trees, some trees in countries that are alive, but they bear no fruit because there's no winter there." So here we are, back in the parable now. 
soon there are two very fine looking houses that are standing. And what happens next brings us to the next point, number two. And they're not all going to be that long. The coming of storms. Jesus says before long the rains and the winds come and the rivers rise and the housing takes a beating. He says it doesn't matter who you are from whence you have come, how smart you are, how well you were brought up, how well, uh, whatever you've been given in life or not been given, it doesn't matter. Life is not always going to be easy. I'm sure if I ask is there anybody in this room over 50 that can say, my life has turned out exactly like I thought it was when I was going to when I was 21? No, of course not. Never does. There are going to be some rough things happen to us, to you, to me. Why? Because this is a fallen world. The effects of the fall of man are all around us. And things happen that aren't pleasant. There are going to be some rough things happen. And when they do, the way you endure and the way you survive those storms will quickly reveal what kind of foundation is under your house. Do you think the people in Oxford, Mississippi at College Hills Presbyterian Church would have dreamed that a month ago their church would have been burned down? Of course not. I was so shocked to find that out early on that Sunday morning. I got a text from up there. That's where some of my children went to school, when, went to church when they were in school there. And boy, are they handling it well. But it's not, and if you've been keeping up with it, the, the, those people are doing great, but it's hard. It's really hard. I remember once being on a sailing trip in the British Virgin Islands with about seven or eight Christian men. We were having a great time. Everything was going great one morning about nine o'clock. We, we were just sailing away and looked over to the right and there was a little bitty cloud about that big on the horizon and we didn't even think anything about it. Within 15 minutes, it, I'm not making this up. I got plenty of witnesses to can prove it. That boat was sideways just like this. It was a 52 point, 52 foot uh, sailing boat and it, it, we thought it was going to turn over. And that happened just like in, in a flash. I want to talk to you about some of the storms that can blindside you. Notice that one of the trials that Jesus mentions here is rain. Where does rain come from? You ever seen any rain come from the ground? No, you haven't. It comes from above. And that is telling us that some of the problems we have are going to come from God, from heaven. What does Hebrews 12, 6 say? Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Listen to what's written in the book of Job, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. God does send trials and bless, trials and struggles our way on occasion. There is an old saying that each generation of men or human beings can be compared, or men or women can be compared to a stack of wood that's placed upon the burning embers of the past, and our destiny is to pass through the fire. Every child of Adam, every one of us in this room, all of us is going to at some time or another in life experience sorrow. 
We're going to have pain. We're going to have disappointment. I'm not a pessimist. I couldn't have started three churches if I was a pessimist, but I'm telling it like it is. We're going to have sorrow and pain and disappointment and eventually we're going to die. And it is going to, all, all of that is sometimes or another going to be wrought by the hand of God. Shakespeare had it exactly right. Do you know that line in Shakespeare when he says, once a man, twice a child? I saw a little baby, some, some lady was holding a little baby when I walked in this morning. Purest little baby. Isn't it interesting to think how helpless that baby is? I've been in the ministry over 50 years. How many times do you think I've been in rooms with people that are dying? Many. They're just as helpless as the baby. Oh, you think you're going to die in your sleep? You know what the percentages are on that? <laughs> it's less than 1%. Your body will get sick or you'll have trouble in your house. Some of your children will, boy, can we all prove this? Grow up and surprise you. And some of them will break your heart. Your friends will die. You thought you were going to have a lot of money. The riches you thought you were going to have took wings and flew away like an eagle. And then what about problems from the earth, as he talks about here? What about it now? It's on everybody's mind down in central Mississippi right now, the floods that come. What does he mean by that? I think he's talking about things that are all around us that just... Floods, people, people will confound you. They sometimes persecute you because of your simple belief in Christ. They try to mock you and talk about you behind your back. They slander you and block you. They'll lie to you. They'll lie about you. They'll tempt you. They'll try to overrun you. And your life will be overwhelmed with disappointment and you will have been hurt by people. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be cynical. I'm telling you like life really is. Sometimes you think it's all going to work out fine when that will is ever read, and then you're left out of the will. How many times have I had to go through that in the ministry? It'll seem like a flood. And then sometimes you'll have mysterious trials. The text says there'll be something that comes from wind. Where's the wind come from? Can you tell me where it's going to blow, what direction from which it's going to blow tomorrow? You say, oh, it always, it comes from different directions. And can you turn it on and turn it off? The, blend, the wind blows where it listeth. Know that verse in scripture? We don't know when or where the wind's going to blow. And so we have an enemy, the prince of the power of the air, and he too gets involved in this. And he will assail us. I'm talking about Satan. He will assail us with blasphemous thoughts. Crafty insinuations, horrible temptations. And then some of us get despondent and get discouraged and get depressed. And Satan comes and tells you it's all a fake, it's not true. You don't believe those Jewish fairy tales, do you? And doubts will come and heresies will trouble you. And then mystery of all mysteries. I want you to take your hymnal right now. And I want you to turn to page 858 in the back. 
And this is the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is the part of the PCA Presbyterian Church Constitution. It's the greatest theological document written since the New Testament, in my opinion. 125 men spent many days praying and fasting for about five years between 1643 and 1648 at the Westminster uh, uh, Cathedral in London. Look, at, look down at the bottom right paragraph. It's of assurance of grace and salvation, section four. Now listen to this. True believers, not fake believers, but the real thing. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation divers, that's many ways, divers ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by negligence in preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, and by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing, and this is, this is the mysterious part, <coughs> by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering, that means allowing, allowing even such as fear him, even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. What is this saying? I remember when I first discovered this, it was frightening to me and, sh and shocking. And there's tons of scripture to back this up. It's saying that sometimes in our Christian lives, sometimes in, God just backs away and we don't know why. And we don't feel assurance anymore. And we don't think he loves us. And we don't feel good about it. And I never have had this happen to me. It may happen tomorrow. But I'm guessing there are people in this room that have gone through some real times when they wonder, does God really love me? I don't feel it anymore. And yet, look at the rest of it. Yet are they never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. There, there are five sermons in that little paragraph right there. Um, folks, you are going to have problems. I'm going to have problems, even if you don't have any right now. If today you're doing great, praise God. I'm so glad for you. What will happen next? And that brings us to the final point. How did Borden of Yale make it? How did a 25-year-old man who had it all and then goes on the way to give his life to serve Christ in China as a missionary and suddenly gets spinal meningitis and dies, how did he... How, did he, how was he able to write what he wrote there in the front of his Bible? I believe it is because he had built his house upon the rock. You can go look him up on the internet and you can read the book, Borden of Yale, and you can see that he was a, he was a serious Christian. He, he had a disciplined spiritual life and he learned the scripture and he, he got down deep and he, he was amazing for what he had done by the time he was 25 years old. He had prepared in the short life that he had, he had prepared he had done his homework. You see, two principles run through Jesus' parables like strong structural beams under the flooring of a house. First, if you're only hearing the truth, and that's all, you just hear it and it goes in one ear and it goes out the other. And you hear it today, or you hear it some Sunday, and it is the Word of God, and it's trying to, the preacher's trying to make, make you get it, and he's, hopefully he's got it, and you walk out the door and forget about it, don't be surprised. 
if what happens to you or to me. If you're only hearing the truth, you're not prepared for life's storms. You can listen to hurricane warnings on the radio and television all you want and flood warnings all you want to and know what to do. But unless you get up off the sofa and do something, you're going to get blown away. Second story from Brookhaven, Mississippi. When I was there in 1983, I was a pastor. We had a deacon named Charles Dixon, Charles and Betty Dixon. They told me a story I'll never forget, and you're not going to forget it either, I'm thinking, after I tell you this. In 1979, there was a terrible flood in Jackson, the Easter flood of 79. Some of you will remember about it. You perhaps weren't living there, but you remember hearing about it. We were living in Flowood, and it rained like you wouldn't believe for about a a complete day, and the water did come up in our backyard. But listen to what I'm about to tell you. Charles Dixon was an Eastern Airlines jet pilot. He was a co-pilot of a big Eastern Airlines jet. He was sitting on the runway in Miami, Florida. They were about to take off to fly to Atlanta. And the the other pilot turned to him and said, aren't you from Jackson, Mississippi? And he says, yeah. He said, do you know y'all have had a lot of rain up there and there's been some flooding? He said, yeah, I kind of heard about that, but I, I don't know anything about it. He said, look at this. And he gave him the front page of the Miami Herald. And there was a picture right in the center of the, of the leading article, the headlines. And it was a picture of the house in Jackson, Mississippi. And the water was up about waist high in, in the yard. And it was his house. Can you imagine what went through his mind? There are no cell phones back then. And about that time, they took off. As soon as he got to Atlanta, he called Betty. She answered. And he said, are you all right? He said, yeah, I'm fine. She said, have we lost everything? She said, we haven't lost anything. He said, what'd you do? (laughs) She said, well, I heard him say it was going to flood. I went to Ace Hardware. And I got every caulking material they had. And I caulked every crack in our house, every door, every window, every floor, everything that possibly that water could get in. And we didn't get a drop of water in our house. (laughs) She got up off the sofa and did something. She prepared for what was coming. Jesus is saying, if you just hear the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and the Scripture, and I've tried to prove to you that you and I don't know the Scripture like we ought to. And I proved it with my class in Memphis, but I've never forgotten it. Everywhere I've gone, I've tried to say, come on, folks, we've got to learn the Bible. If you just hear all the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and don't apply it, do something with it, he's saying, you're going to be history. What a warning. And yet... We see it happen all the time, all the time. Secondly, and I'm almost through, if your foundation is sure, there's no storm that's going to come to you that's going to cause your life to collapse, no matter how severe. It'll be hard. You may struggle. But if you have 
brothers and sisters in the church here and you have family with you and you're all standing together and you're all standing on, on the word of God and believing the principles taught in the scripture and knowing that whatever God ordains is right. Whatever he brings about is whatsoever things the Lord, Romans eight twenty eight. whatsoever God works, he works it out for good to those who love him and live according to his purpose. If you claim that and live by it, it doesn't matter what hits you. You say, I know this is from him and it's, it's part of his plan for my life and grace grows best in winter and this is winter and I'm going to profit by it. You can weather it if your life is built on a firm foundation. And when the sun stops and the sun parts the clouds, you'll be there and you'll still be standing. Matthew tells us how the people responded to Jesus' teaching. Did you get that last verse? You know what that means? Those people heard Jesus' sermon. They said, best sermon I ever heard in my life. Never heard anything like it. Greatest sermon I ever heard. And then they walked out the door and forgot about it. That's what, that's what Matthew's telling us. You know why I know that? Because this gospel of Matthew was written about three or four decades later after the Sermon on the Mount. And if some of those people had put that into practice like they should have some of the things, he would have had some stories to tell us. He's telling us they were astonished, but he doesn't tell us anything else. Jesus didn't teach or preach this for, the, for them just to be astonished and admired. He preached it to produce obedience. I hope that I have gotten through just a little bit to you. Listen, folks, it's taken me all my life to learn this. I'll tell you one other story and then I'll stop. I had the happiest marriage, I think, on earth for 45 years. As I told somebody, we had three fights in 45 years and I lost all three. <laughs> and one night, she, t she was an AP English, senior English teacher in Memphis. And one night she told me, Wayne, my abdomen is hurting. And I thought, I said this to her. I said, Joyce, you don't have to talk like a senior English teacher to me and tell me your abdomen is hurting. Just tell me your stomach's hurting. I thought that was funny. It wasn't funny at all. Within an hour, I was rushing her to the hospital in, in Franklin, right outside Nashville. And when they told me that she had stage four terminal cancer and she lived six months, I fell on the floor. I couldn't talk. And about 15 minutes later, the doctor had left and it was quiet and finally she said, Wayne, can you pray? I said, I don't know. I'll try. I, I, don't, I, I don't need to tell you anymore, but I will tell you that when she went home to glory, it was wonderful. And I can't wait to see her and meet her and I always want to Wish I had a telephone call to heaven and first thing after we greet, talk for just a few seconds, I say, have you talked to C.S. Lewis yet? Because that's who she loves so much. <laughs> and I went to the, and then I went to the bottom of the world for nearly a year. And then Bebo Elkin, who's preached here, introduced me to a lady down in Mississippi who had lost her husband a month before I lost Joyce. She was in the same shape I was. And a year and a half later, 
we married and we've been so happy. I, I just, I learned so much through all of that that, and I know some of you have been through the same thing and you may be going through it now. Just lay that foundation. Start laying it today. Make your mind up. You're never going to be quite as lax about studying the Bible and prayer. And, and you're, you're in a good church here. And you've got some great opportunities. And you pray hard for this search committee. And get the right man here. And let's go through this thing together. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the hard words of Scripture that kind of kind of scare us. But thank you that they're true and they help us grow. May it be so for, for these people here. May they not forget what I've said. If I've really given them what you want, may it be on their heart and minds this afternoon and all week. Bless them, I pray, and help us all to love Christ more. Thank you for all his finished work for us. We pray it in his name. Amen.